You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, thanks for joining in for another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. I'm having to hold my erection down because the guy that we have today is so fucking cool. He is a British adventurer, writer, television personality, and former combat experience soldier. He is best known as chief instructor on SAS Australia, Channel 7, which is like one of the number one shows over there. Uh, and he also, also has climbed Mount Everest. We're going to get into a little bit of that today and so much more. Ant Middleton, welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? I'm all good, Clint. I'm always okay, my friend. How are you? Good. Where are you at right now? You roaming around England? I'm in Ireland at the moment. So I'm in Belfast touring. Um, I'm doing a mind over muscle, a new age of thinking tour. It's basically about um, mindset growth. It's about positivity. And it's about my experiences uh, in combat and how I've overcome certain fears and phobias in order to get the job done. So it's more of a more of a motivational tour that I'm on. I love it. Yeah. And I've got one of your books right here. I'm going to put it on the cameras, make sure everybody sees it. This is, is this your latest? Is this, is this your latest book? My latest one is uh, Zero Negativity, but this is the fear bubble. This is very popular. This breaks down fear, um, how to expose fear and how to uh, ultimately learn to harness it, to use it to your advantage. Because as you know, Clint, fear is a magnificent driving force if you know how to work it for to your advantage. Yeah, no doubt about it. It can either, uh, I think you and I both agree that fear can either, uh, use it as a weapon, you know, and be successful with it. You can weaponize it or, uh, or you can let it consume you, drive you into panic and bad decisions and, uh, you know, bad thoughts. So we're going to dig more into that, but first, as usual, we got to go through the rapid fire. So are you ready? Let's go. All right. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Whoa. All right. Circling it. Okay. Come from the water or come from the air? From the water. From the water. Going back to our roots. We'll talk about that too. Okay. This one has three choices just because of where you're from and where you're at. And, and all three of them really aren't that as popular here in the United States. And that is, okay, soccer, rugby, or cricket? Oh, I'd have to go rugby. Rugby. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back around to that. Uh, Daniel Craig or Sean Connery? Sean Connery. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, James Bond or John Wick? <laughs> uh, I love the sadistic side of John Wick, so it's got to be John Wick. He's fucking <laughs> yeah. badass, that dude. And he never dies. He never dies. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Piccadilly Circle or Times Square? Times Square. Yeah, all right. Look at that. All right. Uh, 
Uh, shoot him in the head or shoot him in the chest? Chest. Yeah. Big target. All right. H and K or Sig Sauer? Ooh. H and K. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a favorite <laughs> of you guys. All right. I know the answer to this one, but we'll uh, throw it out there anyway. Lamborghini or Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which Listen, one? Lamborghini. Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen him in your social. Um, all right. Now, I don't know if this one will be tough or not. Curry or fish and chips? Fish and chips. No Let's shit. go all traditional. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right. We'll circle back around. Coffee or tea? You pick coffee. That's kind of, uh, that's is that unique for a Brit, right? Yeah. You know, I like tea, but I like the hit that coffee gives me. And again, you know, I lived off that stuff in Afghanistan. It was like coffee after coffee after mission after mission. And listen, it got me through. I'm alive because of coffee. <laughs> yeah, I think we all we all have it coursing through our bloods. But what are the ingredients to a good English tea? I hear a English, good English tea. tea. What is that? It has to be maybe from Yorkshire. So from, you know, from where it was sort of tea was born. And it's tea leaves. You know, tea leaves should... Um, sit within sort of like a sieve you pour the water in and mm -hmm. it sort of brews you've got to leave it to brew tea bags are okay there you know but if we're going back yeah. to a proper cup of tea you need tea leaves you leave it to brew for a bit but the, the importance is leaving it to brew you know not squeezing it not stirring it because they say if you stir a pot of tea you're stirring trouble so mm, um like you've got to leave it as it is a couple of minutes pour it and then a tad of milk not too much milk and then God. you've got your perfect cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I, I've always enjoyed going over and uh, working with our counterparts there, and they would always make the tea, right? It's almost like yeah. it's almost an insult. Like if someone goes gets up to get some tea, it, it's automatic. You have to offer it to everybody else too, right? But there's a way of making it as well, Clint. You know, if you, if you don't make it correctly, you will be off of tea duty as quick <laughs> as possible. <laughs> yeah, you're done. Fired. Um, <laughs> All right, come from the water, come from the air. Now, so that this gives us the opportunity. You said come from the water because you're a fellow frogman, and uh, this is a good opportunity to talk about the differences. I know you've probably done this, and you're probably exhausted of doing it, but the differences between the SBS and the SAS, and uh, we know that the SAS is kind of the more popular one that we've heard about for decades. You guys, or they were the, I mean, heck, I, I – look up to them, looked up to them throughout my career. You always hear things about, you know, the Brits, the Brit, you guys have been doing it longer when it came to counterterrorism. You had all the experience for a very long time. Um, but what are the, really the big difference between the SAS and the SBS? Do you know what? The only difference between the two, we do exactly the same selection process. So there's a, there's only one tier one um, sort of organization, and that's the SBS, Special Boat Service, and the SAS. The SBS is the Navy Special Forces, yeah. um, and the SAS is the Army Special Forces. So um, exactly the same uh, selection process. And that the, at the end, you can sort of pick and choose where you want to go. You know, I was an ex-Royal Marine, so we stay loyal to the Navy. So I stayed mm. loyal to, to the Navy and went SBS. And normally the Army, if you're ex infantry or parachute regiment or whatever it may be you stay loyal to the army and you go to the sas um but they're almost exactly the same but we lead with uh, maritime counterterrorism, and the uh sas lead when it comes to land options but in a couple of years clint i think that everything will amalgamate into one 
fighting unit. You know, this whole yeah. tier one will just amalgamate into into one fighting unit because we do exactly the same um, selection process. And we, as the SBS, we led out in Afghanistan. You know, there's not much water in Afghanistan, but that was yeah. our territory for 15 years. And for the SAS, it was Iraq. So now, you know, we come from the air, we come from land, we come from water. You know, I would say that the special boat service has the, the slight advantage of um, being versatile. You know, we, uh, we spend a lot of time on the water. You add water to anything, as you know, Clint, it can become a complete cluster fuck, right? It can really, really mess things up. And if you can operate on water and um, with water around you, underwater on top of it then you know you can pretty much operate anywhere in the world that's what i what i believe um so we have that advantage of just you know that maritime training and also you know when it comes to land stuff and you're nice and dry um you always sort of thank your lucky stars that you're not you know wet cold and miserable before you start <laughs> a task yeah, no doubt about that. And that's a great explanation. So, you know, for, for American listeners, really, the SBS is equivalent to SEAL Team 6, and the SAS is equivalent right. to, like, Delta Force. And, Absolutely. and then the reality is, is we, we, the United States military, have mirrored a lot of our organizational structure, terminology, I mean, you name it, tactics, uh, based on you guys. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool history. You know, it was, it was amazing to me the other day to see it in social media. You know, we just celebrated, I think it was, uh, the Navy's birthday several months ago and it was, you know, 200 and whatever years old. And then I saw, uh, the Royal Marines birthday and it it's a hundred plus years older than our Navy, <laughs> you know, 300 and yeah. something years old. And, you know, it's very telling that, uh, you know, the, the power and the longevity of, of the Brits and you guys being around for so long, it's pretty cool. Um, well, we work closely with, we, you know, with team six with dev group. Um, we've adapted a lot of drills, especially in that Afghanistan era. Um, we've worked very yeah. closely with dev group and, We've adapted a lot of drills, you know, from the way we enter buildings, the way we fight from the door now, the way we fight from windows, the way we, we roll um, into certain tasks, um, vehicle interdictions, you know, Afghanistan, you know, that sort of came into place. And the drills and skills that we've adapted has been jointly with Team Six, you know, so we work ever so closely together and we've adapted this sort of new age modern warfare through American um, through the Americans yourselves and through the Brits. So um, even though we might be older in in our organization, um, we work very, very closely together and we've come up with a highly effective operational close quarter combat drills and skills mm -hmm. um, intertwined with with Dev Group and, and Team Six. So, you know, we can't take all the uh, all the glory, but <laughs> right now it is 50-50 it is yeah. and, um, you know, we, we do uh work closely together and adapt um everything that we do uh to fit a modern day battlefield yeah no doubt about it i've uh had the opportunity to work with all you guys and it's uh it's always professional and uh and a fun experience with that because we uh we're, we're all demented sick individuals that enjoy that kind of thing Correct. <laughs> all right um you know i gave you a tough one soccer rugby and uh cricket right so you picked rugby um what what is the i mean what'd you grow up doing you know, I grew up with soccer, you know, in the UK, it's very soccer orientated. We call it football over here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you get 
older and you know you sort of especially in the military it's more of that contact sport you know it's very very gritty it's very manly shall we say um rugby so um and again there's a lot of uh interconnection sort of rugby matches that we have with not only from the sbs to the sas but marines paras so you sort of flip that and grow into to more of that uh that rugby lifestyle so you know, when I started off as a kid, it was soccer, but definitely turned into rugby now. Just like, just like the, the ethos, you know, rugby players, I'm friends with a lot of professional rugby players and they're just as sick and as twisted as we are. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, all right. So Daniel Craig or Sean Connery? I'm surprised you picked Sean Connery. Yeah, but he's that old school womanizer. You know, he's allowed to drink. He's allowed to, you know, he sort of intertwines smoking with drinking. You know, he can still operate on the job. And he's had, what, 20 martinis? And I'm just like, dude, you are one badass if you can do that. Um, do you know what? I just love the old school element of it. I think with Daniel Craig, don't get me wrong, fantastic, um, great. But they've gone a bit, you know, a bit PC with the whole with the whole bond thing now it's like you know he doesn't drink he you know he you know after he smashes the shit out of a building or whatever he normally goes and you know sleeps with a woman and you know he's like that <laughs> after that he'll have a cigarette and a, but he's got none of that anymore um and yeah. i sort of missed that side to it yeah the daniel craig james bond is definitely darker right just more yeah. and obviously more aggressive like the fighting aspect yeah. and the shooting and the killing whereas sean connery is more of like uh the warrior poet, you know, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's too straight laced. Daniel Craig is too straight laced. Don't get me wrong. He's aggressive and, you know, I love all that. But, you know, you've got to have a bit of fun along the way as well. Come on. We know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny, man. All right. James Bond going down that same artery uh, and John Wick. You pick John Wick. Yeah. The guy with nine lives, 10 lives, 12 lives. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's us, right? That's us in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I've done three tours of Afghanistan and I'm just like that. I've, I've taken up all my lives. So yeah, that's yeah. why I, I fit nicely into TV now. I, hopefully I won't get killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get into that because you are doing some things that uh, could get you killed. Um, Piccadilly Circle or Times Square? You pick Times Square? Are you a fan of New yeah, York? It's, Pic- it's Piccadilly Circus. Clint. Circus, Piccadilly sorry. Circus, yeah. That's the right. Um, Times Square, yeah, I like Times Square because I've been on one of the huge billboards in Times Square. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's one of those where it was such a great experience to see my face up on these billboards in Times Square that I sort of, you know, fell in love with, with, with Times Square. It's such a unique sort of place. It's not that big, but the people from all walks of life, you know, it's like... I could people watch. I could sit down literally for days and just people oh, watch yeah. and go, look at the state of you or wow, you know, <laughs> look, at, look at you. And, um, so, yeah, it's Times Square. I've been to both and Times Square definitely tips the scale. Nice. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a cool play. I find it interesting that because there's so much electronics in, in, in those screens that it can be, you know, freezing cold as you approach Times Square, but as soon as you get in there, all that heat in one spot, it's actually, it's got to be 10, 15 degrees warmer, like right there in the center than anywhere else on the streets of New York, especially during the winter. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, Okay. We did uh, shoot to the head or shots to the chest. Yeah. You pick chest. Yep, we always go yeah. for the chest, go for the heart. You know, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. We have uh, this saying here when it comes to how you uh, separate 
you know, special forces from SEALs. We joke that, you know, special forces go around the globe winning hearts and minds, right, by showing the flag and, and uh, you know, basically teaching insurgents, you know, how to fight, right? But with SEALs, we say we go around winning hearts and minds. For us, that means two to the heart and one to the mind. <laughs> <laughs> so we really don't do too much talking when we show up. But, um, yeah, uh, so, you know, I think, yeah, you got to – is your philosophy the same? You know, you're aiming small, hit small, and the chest is kind of like uh, just a bigger target. makes it easier to do that. Yeah, I'm an ex-sniper as well, um, the Camp Terror sniper, a War Marine sniper. Um, and, yeah, the, the chest is just – it's that big target. It's that center of mass. You know, you can – you could be slightly off, um, and hopefully you'll still get hit, which yeah. will then, you know, the next shot you can tee up and, and hopefully get to perfection. If you're going for the head, you know, I think that's what a lot of people get carried away with, right? It's, it's one of those where, you know, they think of snipers or they think of operators and it's like, yeah, you know, headshot, kill shot. It's when you're, when you've got moving targets, trust me, you're not going for that headshot. You know, when you're uh, a kilometer away, you're not going for that headshot. And um, it's a case of just, uh, you know, realizing that the center of mass right here, you hit anywhere down here from from the head down. It's a kill shot. So you know, center yeah. of mass all. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, go for the big targets, and that uh, that applies to me, especially if you're a bad shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, H and K or Sig Sauer. You went with H and K, which I know is an old favorite of uh, the British Special Operations guys. Yeah, I went for the Heckler and Koch because I used. Uh, I was a big fan of the Heckler and Koch four one seven. Yeah. Um, the assault rifle, the uh, the seven six two um, version, badass, very, yeah. um, and it was yes, it's, it's especially for Afghanistan. It wasn't too long. You know, you could still have it. It had a you know a nice impactful seven six two, obviously, um, but it was small enough to operate through you know through compounds, through buildings. You know how small the cubby holds are, and it still had that that impact of uh, you know you knew that once that hit you, you know oh, you yeah. weren't you weren't getting back up. Yeah, um, we. I wish we would have. We we, we kind of went with the four sixteen, you know, mm -hmm. which is the five five six version. But that, yeah, that's seven six two version. That's like, you know, small gun, big round. I love it, man. That's yeah. cool. Yep. Um. Okay. Lamborghini versus Ferrari. You know, uh, you you went with Lambo because uh, I've seen some pictures on your social. You got that blacked out Batman Lambo, uh, and then you've got a couple <laughs> others, right? Tell me about your your love of Lamborghini. Do you know what? I've always loved supercars. I've always loved the, the need for speed. And I suppose that just comes with the territory. Um, but I could never justify getting a sports car, um, you know, a proper Lamborghini, a two-seater. And then, you know, I started doing well in my career. The money started coming in. So I went with a Lamborghini Urus at first. But I thought to myself, do you know what? It's a family car. It's a five-seater. Um, <laughs> it's an it, SUV, but it's obviously it's a Lamborghini in an SUV shell. Yeah. Um, so I sort of went down that route in explaining to my family, listen, I can get, I want to get a Lamborghini uh, Urus um, for everyone. You know, that's how I blagged it, basically. Um, <laughs> and then uh, once I got the feel of it, I was just like, listen, I'm going to have to get a... So I went, I think I went for a service. I went for a ser to service the Lamborghini Urus. And I came back with a Lamborghini SVJ Roadster. <laughs> 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 Sorry, down. honey. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, guess what? I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what happened. I came back with this thing instead. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. That wasn't pre-planned. That was a sale there and then when I saw the car, and I just put a, a, a big deposit down, and then before I knew it, I had this SPJ Roadster as well. Um, but yeah, listen, I, I love Lamborghinis because um, their overall design. Um, which I absolutely love and which works is when you get in the driver's seat, you um, believe that you're in a cockpit, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of an, of an airplane of a jet. And it does feel like that. Um, and then you start going through the gears and, you know, start really revving that bad boy up. It, it feels like you're in a jet. And that's what I love about it. I've been in Ferraris as well. Don't get me wrong. Great cars. And, but it's just, I love that cockpit feeling where you're just like, wow, you know, you're in, you're closed up nice and tight and you're good to go anything over you know if you're over five foot 10 five foot 11 then you know the lamborghini probably isn't for you but i'm a short ass i'm five foot eight so i'm happy yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so is service on those i mean have they been pretty reliable do you feel like yeah could could you use it as an everyday car or yeah i do i use the us as an everyday car um the svj isn't an everyday car because it's a v12 six liter um you know animal bad yeah. boy um animal yes i think 780 um horse brake um but that's not an everyday car it's more of a if i want to go out for a drive if i'm feeling a bit pissed off or you know i want to clear my head then i just rev that bad boy up and it takes away everything it's just like because you've got to concentrate <laughs> in in a v12 like that you have to concentrate on your driving because one you know little mistake supercars are so unforgiving you make one mistake in the supercar and you'll be off the road. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah great, great vehicles. Awesome, man. That's cool. Um, okay. The last one I threw at you is curry versus fish and chips. So yeah, you went with the traditional fish and chips. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to stay patriotic there. I think, you know, you can't beat a good fish and chips. It's, you know, when it's been a cold, miserable day and normally it's on a Friday as well. Um, you just, Fish and chips will always cheer you up. Lots of salt, lots of vinegar on the chips, and ah, oh, you're good to go. Listen, you you feel like shit after, but listen, it's well worth it. It's well yeah. worth it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, that's one thing I enjoyed being over there is I always couldn't wait to go get a good plate of like fish and chips. And uh, yeah, man, it wasn't until recently that I was educated on the curry powder. You know, Brits going to England, however long ago, hundreds of years ago, were introduced to Indian food and then came back and then created curry powder because they were trying to replicate the food they had in India. And so I found it interesting that curry powder, those stuff that we use and buy off the shelves was actually an English invention, but it was all it was, was to try and replicate Indian food. So, uh, yeah, we love, we love Indian food over here and don't get me wrong. It's, it's fabulous. And it's part of our culture as well. It's become, you know, immersed with with british culture you know you talk about fish and chips and scones and tea you know indian food is very much part of that culture and we embrace yeah. it and, and the indi- the uh you know the indian culture is, is great in the uk yeah. it fits in nicely it fits in nicely that's right you're listening to can you survive this podcast thanks for tuning in please make sure to subscribe rate and share on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
Okay. Well, hey, you made it through the rapid fire, and that uh, yeah got us in all kinds of all kinds of trouble. So now we'll get into some more trouble with you and uh, your background. Um, what's a snapshot of your childhood leading up to joining the military? Like, were you a troublemaker? What'd you have going on? I was very much a lone wolf. I wouldn't say I was a loner. I come from uh, a family, a big family. I'm one of six, um, and we were brought up in France uh, from the ages of nine for myself from nine till 16 when i joined the military so uh, you know didn't really have that much of a bad childhood it was very open we had acres of field to play in you know i'd go and spend a lot of time in dens making bow and arrows making traps um i had the old sas um survival handbook so you know but but i never wanted to really join the military it wasn't even on my radar until i was about 14 15 um when school started to finish and you know i didn't really like school um not that i wasn't good at school i had normal grades etc but um i was just an active kid i wanted to be self-sufficient i wanted to stand on my own two feet they said to me and you should go and join the military someone said to me in france you should join the military it'd be really good for you to uh to use some of that energy that you that you have into a challenge in life. Um, so that's what I've done. I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm going to join the military. I'll have my own pay packet. Um, I'll have a roof over my head. I'll have food in my stomach. And it will challenge me physically and psychologically. And I joined the military at the age of 16 and 11 months, um, basically the earliest opportunity, and just loved that organisation. I just loved the feel of it. Um, found out that I was good at my job. You know, when you just find your niche and you find that you're good at it, and then it just escalated from there. I, you know, joined the Marines, uh, recce troop, sniper, and then went on to doing a tour of Afghanistan with the Royal Marines and come back from there, straight on selection, past selection. Um, went into Sea uh, Squadron in the Special Boat Service and conducted a further two tours of duty um, of Afghanistan with the special boat service. And then, you know, I was sort of combat fatigued, I suppose. I was like, right, I was point man, you know, sniper, I've sort of been there and done it. Three tours back to back almost from 2006 to 2010. And um, I just thought to myself, right, I'm going to see what's on, on in, I'm going to see what's in the outside world. Um, and I was 32 at that time. So I thought to myself, it's young enough to get a new career. Mm-hmm. So I decided to, to, to take the big leap of faith and leave. Yeah. Well, you had a good career. Now, I get, just like you do, I get lots of questions about BUDS, right? Basic underwater demolition seal training. What's the hardest part? What's this? What's that? So for our listeners, selection for you guys, what are like the highlight? You know, we have Hell Week and we have Pull Comp and then we go out to San Clemente Island where people can't hear you scream. And that's where you uh, get even further, uh, you know, torture of different sorts. But um, what are the highlights of selection that, you know, most people like fear or that anticipation of death is worse than death itself type moment? What was it for you or what is the more popular one, popular parts of selection? It's broke down into stages. So the first four weeks of selection is in Brecon Beacons. Um, and it's called the hill phase where you carry extreme weight on your back over extreme distance and you're timed along the way. And you have to meet certain criteria, certain time uh, restrictions. And in the first four weeks, 70% of the course 
um, is gone in those wow. first four weeks because you're up, you know, four four thirty in the morning. You're sat on your Bergen in the Brecon Beacons. It's pissing it down. You've got the big four ton of lights that are shined upon you. The chief instructor comes out. All you can see is his shadow. And he's telling you, because you're just a number, he's telling you what number to get onto what wagon. Um, and he gives you the opportunity every morning to VW because um, you don't know what March is ahead of you. You don't know how long you're going to be out on the ground for. And the first four weeks is just gets rid of the dead wood. Because a lot mm. of people, they go on selection just for the kudos. You know, they get on selection and they come back, go back to their unit and go, oh, I've been on selection. And it sort of does boost their career a little bit. But the first four weeks is just all, you know, oh, it's just humping and, 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 you know, getting across the Brecon Beacons, which is, you know, disgusting. You get four seasons in one. It's, 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 it's horrendous the first four weeks. But when you get past the first four weeks, that's when the course starts. Mm. So you've lost 70% of the course. 202 people started my course. I think 34 of us um, got to the next stage, which, which is a jungle phase. So you do jungle training and it's six weeks long. So you do two weeks of sort of beat up jungle training. It's, it's you know, horrendous. And then you go and fly out to Brunei for, for four weeks and you conduct um, live exercise, live rounds, break contact drills, um, evacuation drills, um, camp attacks, you name it, all live ammunition. And that's more to see how you operate under extreme sort of pressure and fatigue with live ammunition, mm. how safe you are. Because we both know the moment you get one tick for one safety element, you're off the course. Now, when you're in the jungle for four whole weeks and you're being assessed with live ammunition, break contact drills any time of the day, because all you're doing is patrolling. And then at the end of that phase, you do 10, 10 days of a proper final X. Um, again, you lose another half of the course, just mainly due to uh, self-induced pressure where they've made a mistake. And it might not be a safety mistake, but they've made a mistake. And, you know, the, the DS don't tell you anything. So you plant that seed of doubt yourself and you go, right, you know, I'm not going to pass this phase. So there's no point in carrying on. And a lot of people VW in the trees, in, in the jungle. But um, again, you make one safety mistake, you're off. So that's the second phase. That's all about soldiering. And then you've got the escape and evasion, which is the third phase, mm. um, which again is, you know, in the highlands of Scotland, no one can hear you scream. No one can hear you talk. You're on the yeah. run for a whole week um, before you get captured. You know, you get to a final RV, double agent, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go through a three day uh, interrogation process. Um, and then once you, if you pass that, then that's the bulk of selection done. That takes about four months. And then you go on to continuation training, which again is another two months um, before you actually get badged. And that's all your CQB. That's your, your, your shotgun drills, you know, taking off doors, abseiling into buildings. You're in the killing house 24 seven. Again, one safety mistake on that. You're gone as well. Mm -hmm. So um, 202 people started my course and on badging day, eight of us passed. So, um, it's very much, it's full on for six months. There's no rest period. There's no, you know, that stress of just staying in that zone, as you will know, for, for, for six months is is um, is tiring. But you get to the four-month period, and if you pass the escape and evasion, you can take a breath. You can go, right, listen, all I need to do now is really, you know, because it's a new learning phase. You need to stay on the learning curve, really take on board what's, what's been taught every single day, and do not make any safety errors. Yeah, no doubt about it. Safety and performance, safety is always primary. And mm -hmm. uh, just for uh, language barrier, 
A Bergen is a rucksack, right? What we call That's a rucksack right. here. Um, mm -hmm. Pissing is when it's raining. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then v, VW is voluntary withdrawal. Uh, what else yeah. did you say that we need to <laughs> do? You that? know what? The voluntary the, withdrawal is you know, translation. Like when you guys ring the bell. You know when you ring the bell. Yeah, ding, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, and ding, they ding, put ding, their yeah. helmets down. It's, it's, That's it's right. Like, it's like... Yeah, we call it. Uh, what, what they used to. I think it's changed name. Anyway. I mean, it's like d never ring the bell. It's quitting. But the official term is drop upon drop on request. D O R. You D O R. Drop on request. You guys call it V W, which is voluntary VW. withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Because at the end of the day, Clint, we're all volunteers. Um, yeah. You know, they don't really want you to pass their course. You know, you have to really, really prove yourself to them. And, you know, we've done, you know, by this stage before we even get on selection, you know, the average soldier would have done six to 10 years. You know, there'll be a, there'd be an elite infantryman, there'd be a sniper, there'd be a recce troop operator. And even then, you know, they get on, we go on the course and, you know, it's a 90%, 95% failure rate of all the elite soldiers that are trying for selection. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, it, it is really the attention to detail, as we mentioned before, staying sharp, even when you're absolutely on the bones of your ass and you're, you know, you're trying to crawl up a ridge line, um, you know, in the jungle and you're just slipping down it because it's you're just getting tangled up everywhere. It's just making sure that you, either you keep that finger on that safety catch so it doesn't clip off. Or yeah. you know you don't you don't um, ND um, do a negligent discharge. It's it's so many little things that you that you just need to stay switched on to um, when you're when you're absolutely drained. Um, and I suppose it's super important because you know you see it happening quite more than we'd like to think. You know, running off an aircraft and boom, someone catching up in the arse or in the leg um, off of their own dude. You're like that's unacceptable. You know, mm -hmm. no doubt about it. I agree with you 100. percent um, and, and during this time, you, so you went through selection, you, you get over there, but I think prior to that, if I remember right, you you know, unfortunately American military is not as educated on, uh, foreign service medals and accomplishments as most of the world is on ours, right? Everyone in, in the world has heard of a silver star, a bronze star, the American awards are kind of global, whereas you know, other countries' awards, we're, we're not as in tune to them, but you, you've received the King's badge. Now, can you, yeah. what, what is that? What is that equivalent to? And you know, what, how did you get that? So during Royal Marine training, um, it's a nine month process. I, well, I, I know it's the longest infantry training in the world. Um, that's why we've got a very good reputation because before we even get to a unit, you know, we've done all the live firing, we've done multiple exercises, um, and again, you know, there's a, it's a big failure rate in the War Marines. Um, it's it's a, an extremely hard uh, nine months. And you can join straight off Sibby Street. It's like joining, you know, the Navy SEALs, apart from obviously um, minus Dev Group. But it's like, you know, you're going straight into the fold. You know, right, there's no right. messing around. You're either you've got to stay with it or not. And um, it dates back to a prince that done the... Uh, commando course and who absolutely nailed it and there's set criterias and points that um you have to get to get up to that standard so we're, within each troop um obviously your everything that you do your is a point system so you know you have to stay on the ball you have to stay up there and if you get over what the prince got uh, i think years and years ago or he was a he was a he was part of the royal family and uh 
if you get over that point system, then you're you're awarded the king's badge. And what it does, it gives you a year's seniority when you get to your unit. Um, it's a badge of 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 honor that you wear throughout all your uniform throughout your whole career. Um, but not every troop gets it. So a lot a lot of troops don't get the king's badge. So they that people just don't reach that point system, or people can't get up to that um, to, to that level. So it's uh, once you get there, you don't know if anyone's got the king's badge. Um, and then I got pulled aside one day and and, and told that you know I excelled the uh, the point system and um, I received received the king's badge. So it's uh, yeah, it's not a combat badge. It's more of a you know you've excelled as a as a as a war marine commando. Uh, but there's a lot of emphasis on you. You know when you get to a unit. I more or less got promoted straight away within six months, uh, you know, I got promoted to Lance Corporal and, you know, you can put a lot of noses out of joint. So I don't know if it's a good thing or, <laughs> yeah. or a bad thing, but um, no, it's definitely something that, um, that I'm proud of. Um, you know, I'm in the drill shed, my, my name's up on, on, on the board with all of these fantastic people or operators uh, um, that have, that have passed, uh, passed the Royal Marine Commando training uh, course um, so yeah, it is. It's 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 a big thing for for Royal Marine. But then you you venture into the Special Forces uh, world, um, and that all of that disappears, right? Yeah, yeah. Then all of a sudden you're uh, <laughs> yeah you're you're zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just you're a new guy. Hey, new guy. Yeah, exactly. All the shit you did before you came here, guess what? Doesn't mean dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we, you did obviously an impressive military tour and, uh, you know, thank you for your service. Um, now you kind of decide, all right, I'm going to get out of the military. And uh, you, uh, well, you didn't, you kind of had a unique transition. Tell us about your transition and, and uh, some of the trouble you may or may not have gotten into. I don't know. I'll let you, I'll let you tell that story. Are you sure you don't know, Clint? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can Google you. I mean, I can. You're very Googleable. No, you're very Googleable. You know, you crash the system. You crash the system. <laughs> um, so when I left, I left in 2012. Again, you know, you know, I've done tours of Northern Ireland, Macedonia, um, three tours of of Afghanistan, and it just it was just my time. You know done a lot i felt like i accomplished everything i set out to do as, as a as a soldier and uh i left at 32 thinking well i've got a whole new career in front of me um which rightly so you know it's only young you can definitely uh jump onto another career ladder at that stage um but after six months of leaving i found myself in prison um i got into an altercation with a policeman a police officer um it was just a silly drunken night you know it should never have happened but it did um outside the nightclub a bit of an altercation with two groups um i tried to split it up got poked in the chest by a policeman uh, you know <laughs> a drunken idiot reacted um and got into 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 quite a brutal fight with this policeman and um ended up sort of coming out on top um not in a proud way but just in a way where i'm just like oh, oh i am in trouble um, got chased down the street, you know, I tried to hide in the river. I jumped into a river um, <laughs> thinking again, thinking I'm still a frogman, right? So I, jumped, so I jumped into that. So listen, check this out. So I jump into this river and by this stage, the whole 
town had gone mad, you know, police are everywhere. You know, you get into a fight with a policeman, you, you know, they call their units, you know the score. So yeah. uh, a couple of policemen chase me and they see me jump into the river. Um, and I'm thinking, right, you know, I just, I managed to swim to some sort of bushes and I managed to hide underneath the bushes and I was holding onto the side, hiding underneath. And they got the dogs out of this stage The dogs are going up and down. And I knew that, you know, I know how it is. You know, they walked right past me with the dogs and they couldn't smell me. And I thought, brilliant. I thought they'd go away in a minute, you know, they'd go, you know, they couldn't find me. Um, but what I didn't know is because someone had seen me enter the water, a policeman had seen me enter the water, but they hadn't seen me exit. They weren't allowed to leave the scene just in case I drowned. You know, they're going to send in divers, but I didn't know this. So anyway, it's late. Well, it's early in the morning. It's about two o'clock in the morning, even even late earlier than that. It's probably about three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I'm under this bush for, and I'm there for about 20 minutes. And all of a sudden I start to shake. <laughs> I start trembling, right? Cold water shock kicks in. And as I, as I'm shaking, these little ripple, ripples are coming out from under the bush. <laughs> <laughs> so these, so these little, and I'm thinking, there's nothing I can do about it at this stage because, you know, that's my body going into survival mode, as we know. Um, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, fuck. Uh, and then all of a sudden the policeman recognizes obviously, um, identifies the ripples and says look he's under the bush he's under the bush so i sort of swim out into the middle of the uh into the middle of this uh river it's like a it's yeah it's it's, 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 it's the, it is a river um and then uh yeah i just sort of said you know i, I was like treading water putting my hands up and they're like you know come here otherwise we're gonna taser you and i'm like Come on, dude! You're not going to taser me, are you? I said I'm in the fucking water. So, so I, was, I was having a bit of a bit of a bit of a conversation back and back and forth. But um, yeah, no, obviously surrendered myself. Um, looked back at the CCTV, and it's one of those moments where you just cringe. You're just like, you know, put your hand up. Um, and I got sentenced to 14 months in prison. Um, and rightly so. You know, I sucked it up like you do, like we do. You take ownership of it. I'm like, yeah, didn't argue the case. I was like, no put me inside um i done half of that sentence um and uh, the other half on probation uh and that was in 2013 uh so it's been a while now um and then started to rebuild from there clint i had a massive uh, word with myself in prisons it's like you know you've come from being an elite operator to standing in in prison you know vocal and that shameful feeling just came out. I felt ashamed, you know, it wasn't no hardship. You know, I've been to harder places of, you know, I've had to adapt to and survive in, 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 in harder environments. So that wasn't an issue, but it's the whole shameful of shamefulness of it. You know, I wasn't providing for my family. I wasn't providing for my kids. You know, I was a burden on, on them and I'd never been in that position before. And that's ultimately what's kept me out of prison. And then, um, you know, I left with a new mindset. As soon as I left prison, I literally had, 10 pound odd in my pocket um and that was it right i had to go straight and work some crappy security job you know 80 pound a day just to you know start off somewhere to, to build back up but i felt free you know i thought you know what i've got nowhere no you know i can't go any lower i've only i can only rebuild now you know and it, it almost felt that the world was at my feet because you know i was, I was starting from a from a ground platform you know yeah. and the, the rebuild believe it or not is always better than the build and then um, a TV opportunity came along, which I jumped on and I haven't looked back since. We will be right back after the break. I mean, you know, they, one, everyone makes mistakes. I, I had a buddy at uh, SEAL Team 3. He's a, uh, a Golden Gloves 
boxer, right? And yeah. almost identical situation as you. He was, in, he was already in an altercation, and uh, a cop grabbed him from behind, like right at his trap, right, right on the back of his neck, and tried and then pulled him aggressively. And uh, he didn't even think twice. He turned around and knocked that cop out. And then same thing, natural instincts. He ran, <laughs> and, uh, ran towards the ocean. And, um, you know, it, it happens to a lot of guys. Um, and, you know, some guys, it's, you know, they know what they're doing. Other guys, they don't because they're caught off guard and because, you know, we have a hair trigger, right? I mean, especially coming out of the military, you have a hair trigger. Um, you know, absolutely. The reactionary gap is very, very small, no matter where the person is standing in front of you, whether they and that's know what happened to me, Clint. Yeah. That's exactly what happened to me. The police officer poked me in my chest and it almost happened in slow motion. He poked me and told me to fuck off. He's like, fuck off. Um, and he poked me. And my first reaction was, please don't do that again. <laughs> and and then, then, then the second time he went, it almost was a again the hair trigger. I was thinking it's a police officer in, fr in front of you, and even though I was, you know, intoxicated by alcohol, he pushed me again. And that second time, I couldn't control it. It's almost like a button. It went, <laughs> and and then that was it. It was it again knocked him out. It was game over from then. But you, it's funny that you mentioned that hair trigger because I never thought. You know, I always thought that I could, you know, control that. But obviously when you're, you're, you're intoxicated and when your, your vision is blurred. Yeah. With, um, and again, that's not the excuse, but it's, it, it's like that. I didn't, I didn't think I had that trigger in me, but because mm -hmm. I, you know, always think I can, I can control the situation. But that was exactly that. It was just that poke. And it's just like, and I knew it was coming and it almost, I, went, I wanted to move out of the way. And then it happened again. It was just that trigger that, that, you know, that trigger that, that, that happened and again in the military clint you know we're taught different to society i i the, the military for me is a completely different world to society because in the military you are taught to deal uh with aggression by extreme aggression if someone's aggressive to you on the battlefield you have to be more aggressive oh, yeah. um, than them to get the job done it's the same with violence you know we are taught to deal with violence with extreme violence mm -hmm. you know if you're on a battlefield and someone's being violent towards you the only way you're going to counter that is with extreme violence and you know those those method methodologies those you know those those methods of teaching are just unacceptable in society you know you can't deal with aggression with extreme aggression because guess what you know you, you'll end up uh, in prison you can't deal with violence with extreme violence because there's zero tolerance to violence in society yeah. So it was a massive learning curve for me when I got in. And that's the, the learning curve that I taught, um, that I sort of really identified was, and you can never go into that code red aggression in society. It's not accepted. Do not go there. Because the moment you go there, you're going to be classed as, you know, you've got uh, aggression issues, you know, anger management issues. Do not go there. No need to go to that code red. And then also violence. You've got to cut violence completely out of your life. It's not accepted. There's zero tolerance to violence in society. Um, and I've got to cut that out of my life in the UK. Um, and that's, that's, how I, that's how I ultimately dealt with things and, and, and move forward. Well, I mean, you had that hiccup, you know, and like they say, where there is, uh, where there is failure, there is success. And uh, you have come out on top. And so kind of getting into your post-prison life, uh, 
hell, you have just kind of torn it up. You've, you know, you've written a bunch of bestsellers. You've had uh, these these number one ranked TV shows. Um, and then on top of that, you've climbed Mount Everest and you're on speaking tours and you're just, you're just, you're just wreaking havoc, buddy. You're doing all kinds of great <laughs> stuff. So where did it start? Like, so put it in order for the listeners. You, you wrote a book and then it turned into a, you, and then you kind of led to shows or you started, you, you ended up on a show and it kind of led to writing books or what was the order in which you kind of attacked all this? So first of all, it was, um, TV, TV came calling. So in, in the UK, the special forces circle, you know, we only got one special forces and it's, 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 t- it's a tier one and it's such a small circle. Mm-hmm. And we uh, got wind that channel four wanted to do a, uh, which is a terrestrial channel here in the UK. They wanted to do a uh, selection process, a special forces selection process for everyday folk, you know, mm-hmm. people from all walks of life to see if they've got the, 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 physicality and the mentality to to be pushed to certain limits um and one phone call literally led to another it's like and there's this tv production company they want to do uh this tv program um are you game for it and i'm like yeah let's let's you know let's see where it takes me um and then i got a phone call from the channel saying and you know would really like to to speak to you and and interview you um, for this TV show. And I'm like, great, let's do it. Then DSF, so the director of special forces got wind of it. So as soon as they got wind of it, they were like to everyone, everyone within the organization, they were like, do not go near it. You know, if you go near it, obviously you're going to break the secrecy act. Secrecy act is that we can't be filmed and we shouldn't give away our identity. so everyone, there was probably about 15 of us in the beginning and everyone went, went shooting back under their rocks, you know, into the shadows. And it, it was just left with me and, and me and Foxy, basically. Um, and I said to Foxy, I said, I'm doing it. I said, you know, I've got, you know, I've got a family to feed. Um, you know, I've got, we can really, really amplify this as a great promotional tool for the military. Now, we're not going to give away any trade secrets, trade secrets. You know, it's been done before. You know, you look at your Andy McNabs and your Macaleeses and, you know, your Eddie Stones. They've, you know, they've done a version of this before. And, you know, all you're doing is doing military type training with with individuals. So I said, look, they're getting too carried away with it. I said, we're not going to give away any of that. We wouldn't do that anyway. Um, so I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then Foxy was the same. He's like, he's one of the instructors on the course. Um, he said he's going to do it. And then we got pulled into, into the barracks. <laughs> and if you do this, we're going to take you to court. And I said, look, listen, I've got a family to, um, to provide for. I said, I've got bills to pay. Um, I said, and plus there's a great message here. I said, you know, if we get this right, um, you know, we make it different and we lead by example and we really show them what we're worth. I said, it can be a great promotional tool. And in the end, you know, the power of persuasion, um, we managed to get the, get the sign off. But everything had to be bypassed by the military. You know, everything that we do that has any military um, tone to it, it has to go through a system where it gets signed off to make sure that we're not slipping up. And rightly so. So we agreed to that. And then before I know it, um, SAS Who Dares Wins is born. Um, I'm the chief instructor on it. And it's blown in the UK. It's just gone bang. Um, and then straight into uh, straight into some books. I started writing books. And again, not your 
typical autobiographies, you know, your war stories. It's just like how I've overcome certain situations, how I've used fear to my advantage during um, my time in, in the special forces, how I've uh, managed to adapt the, the positive mindset that I have through my life experiences, whether it's losing my father at a young age, the military, going to prison, um, you know, now, you know, reforming a new career. And people can really, really relate to that. And uh, so my books sort of blew as well thereafter. And then it just went from TV program to TV program. Then I'd done, you know, I climbed Everest, which was filmed. I reenacted the mutiny on the bounty from 1789, the hardest survival feat known to man. Um, that was hardcore. You know, it took us 60 days. I lost um, 21 kilograms during that. Um, and then it just blew from there. Then it went bang over to Australia. And now I'm doing SAS Australia. Uh, and my books are just going from strength to strength. I've just teetered into the fiction, um, into the fiction sector, so uh, which is going really well. Um, a book called Cold Justice, and it's about a, uh, a character called Mallory. Um, so uh, that's just hit the Sunday Times bestselling chart as well. So it's all go. It's all systems go, mate. It's all systems go. But what I love about it is it's given me it's given me a platform to help people. You know, and keeping it real. I like to keep things real. Yes, we mess up. Yes, we make mistakes. I've messed up along the way, you know, but it's about the bounce back. It's about how you adapt psychologically to process what you've done in order to um, be an advantage to your life, in order to impact you in a positive way to move forward. Um, and I've been there and done it, whether it's, you know, like I said, combat, whether it's Everest, where, where, I, nearly, where, I, where I nearly died as well, or where, whether it's, you know, being at the lowest of the low and going to prison um, and, you know, getting back out and rebuilding. Yeah. What an awesome message, man. And I can, you can hear it in your voice, the excitement that comes with what you're able to do now. Um, and of course, I mean, you look really good on the cover of a book. I mean, look at that. <laughs> look almost a little like got a few more grays now, but <laughs> <laughs> you got some Wolverine kind of look going. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's like, uh, yeah, definitely like Marvel superhero and those, those really Love blue, it. those blue eyes. Jesus, look at those things. Um, but yeah, no, it's obviously I, I, you gave me this book and, uh, I started going through it, um, on, on one of my flights and, it's really good, man. You're actually, and you're funny. You're funny in these things. You have that uh, that witty sense of humor. The that humor I feel. in the face of adversity. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I noticed the humor, and I think that definitely, when it comes to self help books, like having that wittiness and having that with, with having that humor tangled up with some of the drama, just makes yeah. it that much better, man. It's a really good job. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. All right, so now we're going to roll in to the third phase of your uh, process, your selection, we'll call it, and uh, see if you survive this podcast. So are you ready? Let's do it. At this moment, that's when the uh, the stressful, uh, what is it called, the uh, kind of music that's playing in the background right now after post-edit. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it'll be playing. It'll sound good. Okay. All right, here we go. For this scenario, you have been brought to California to work on a TV show. What do you know? Um, and you're staying at this really nice, badass Airbnb. 
Uh, it's kind of a ranch-style home. Uh, it's nighttime. You're home alone, okay? And uh, you're in bed, and suddenly everything starts to shake violently, all right? And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what California is due. It's actually overdue for a huge earthquake. So, anyway, you feel everything start to shake, okay? Do you, A, get up and rush out of the home, or B, stay in the house? Now, there's a lot of protocols that come with earthquakes that you may or may not know about, but uh, you're going to, A, get up and run outside, or are you, B, going to stay inside? Depends how violent the shake is. Um, (laughs) I would say that the first initial shake, I'd probably stay put. Um, so, you know, I, it, you know, I'd stay put, assess it, and then, then go from there. There you go. Look at you. So, yes, you want to stay in the house. Um, there's a lot of common misconceptions when dealing with earthquakes and the protocol that come with it. But rushing outside, especially at night, you know, you don't know what you're running into. And the structure you're inside of is going to protect you more than probably uh, whatever's falling outside um, so yeah, you don't want to put yourself at risk, especially at night. Um, so good job. Yes. B stay in the house. All right. Next. Do you a lay down next to a sturdy piece of furniture, uh, like a big couch or a table or B go stand in a door frame. It's a tough one. A tough I would one. say, um, I would say a, because if any, anything was to fall, then that sturdy bit of furniture would hopefully protect you yeah. from any... Good job. Yes. A, another misconception, because you'll hear about it here in the States, is go stand in a door frame. But unfortunately, door, door frames are not like reinforced. They're just a door frame. And uh, there's nothing that's really going to protect you. But a couch laying like you know horizontally up against it uh, will hopefully break the fall of other debris because the number one killer in an earthquake is falling debris. Uh, So you want to basically take cover, uh, if you will. All right. So the initial shake has stopped. All right. So now do you, A, stay put and assess, take a moment and kind of look, listen, and feel, right? Or B, get up and rush out of the house. A. A, you are, yes. You are correct, sir. The leading cause of death, obviously, is the falling debris. You want to stay. You want to assess. You want to take a moment and make sure you've got your wits about you and you're looking around at what the condition of what's around you, you know. Um, So awareness is key. Um, So you take about a minute. You wait. You assess. You make sure there's no loose debris that's going to fall on you. After waiting a minute or so, you decide to start to move out of the house. Um, you move towards an exit at the rear of the home, which you have to pass through the laundry room on your way to the back door. So as you pass through the laundry room, do you, A, keep moving and just get the hell out of there, or B, stop for a second, turn off gas, electricity, and circuit breakers? Well, I would say... If you've already assessed the situation, then if I'm going through the laundry room as well, um, I would turn everything. I would, if I could, turn everything off um, because if that if another tremble comes and that building collapses, but also I'd grab I'd grab a jacket, I'd I'd grab some some warm clothes, I'd grab <laughs> yeah, it because oh yeah. you might go out of that building, um, you might go out of that building, and uh, you know another more violent um, shake might come along, which might collapse the building. 
Yeah. So I would say stop, assess. If you've got time, if it's on the way there, turn it off, grab a yeah. jacket, out you go. You're right on, man. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a question in theory that can go either way, really. I mean, obviously, yeah. get off the X as soon as possible is one goal. But mm-hmm. if you happen to see circuit breakers or a gas valve or whatever, then yeah, sure. Because the aftershock and everything that usually happens after an earthquake is fire, gas pipe, all these explosions. There's a lot of mayhem that comes based on what the earthquake has caused. Um, and you bring up a great point, like grabbing warmies and grabbing some stuff on your way out is definitely ideal in fact to this day i keep a pair of shoes right next to my bed because your feet become the most important tool you will ever have in a crisis whether it's broken glass debris and the last thing you want to do is be barefoot and so no matter where i am in the world i always have a pair of shoes next to my bed now and it's just a habit that's been there since being overseas you know and getting caught off guard (laughs) so primary mode of transport isn't it you feet so that's right um and warmies yes all of us special operators know the importance of warmies uh all right So uh, now you uh, exit, uh, you're about to exit the home when there's an, another aftershock, right? They have these, uh, these post-earthquake tremors that you definitely have to be on high alert for. Um, but this time you tumble, you fall over, and some debris and rubble kind of falls down on top of you, all right? So you're covered in, in this rubble, all right? Uh, do you a use all your strength and push the rubble and debris off to escape or b slowly crawl and make your way towards whatever light that is you know that you can actually see and slowly remove debris um i would say it would be b yeah slowly yeah take it slow you don't want to be rushing up you might be rushing into made more mayhem that's right. Uh, the slow movement, in a, especially with fallen debris, is really important when you test. If you have to move something and you've, you kind of grab it, let's say it's a boulder, let's say it's a pipe, whatever it is, and you, you grab it and you realize there's weight on it, then you don't want to touch it any longer, right? You don't want to muscle that because you could pull that, that piece of furniture, that pipe, that rock, and all of a sudden more stuff. It could be load-bearing. You don't want to be messing around with load-bearing stuff. So you want to touch it. If it's loose, move it. If it's stuck, leave it alone and then create a pathway out. And this applies not just to earthquakes. I mean, this is you find yourself uh, in terrorist events where explosives are used and the building has fallen. Anything, anytime anything has fallen, you want to be cautious on how you move things because you could just make it worse. Um, Okay, so as you slowly remove the materials, you find yourself stuck and trapped under just way too much immovable debris. Um, And uh, you've now been stuck for about an hour. So do you, A, begin tapping for signal uh, for help, like SOS tapping methods on pipes and rocks and whatever you can get, whatever's around you, or B, scream and shout like like a crazy person hoping somebody will hear you? I would say um, I would say tap. Yes. Tap the stuff. You're screaming and shouting. You're just going to exhaust yourself. And then you know, if you tap and then you start to hear voices, then maybe you can scream back. But I would definitely try and conserve that energy. Try and find something that you know you can get. If you can find something you can tap, it can echo a lot more than than screaming and shouting. So I'd definitely say the first option. 
Yeah, you nailed both. Both reasons. One, conserving energy. You don't know how long you're going to be there, so there's no sense in, you know, act, you know, yelling and screaming. Um, and you want to remain hydrated. And yelling and screaming uh, tends to dehydrate you. People don't realize that, but there's a lot of moisture that you uh, release when you're one trying to move in an area where you're confined, and two, yelling and screaming. So tapping, uh, and tapping works to your benefit, especially once the dogs are out. Dogs can, you know, will will come in not just nose and nose dogs, but they can hear you uh, far better than than humans, right? And that tapping sound. Um, okay, so yes, you decided to conserve your energy and tap, tap, tap away. And uh, a neighbor comes and finds you and pulls you out. Look at that. Now you're okay. Uh, a pond so pull. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I said, it depends if you like your neighbor. That's right. Hopefully your neighbor likes you. <laughs> um, upon being pulled from the rubble, your neighbor discovers that you've got a big gash across your forehead. Um, and you're still in the, inside the building. So do you, A, look around for bandages and first aid equipment, or B, just get the hell out of the building at this point? So the, the debris is falling on you. Um, I would say if you've, got, if you've got a big gash on your head... Um, yeah, you want to stop that bleeding ASAP. Yeah, once again, that's a question goes both ways. Um, you know, a misconception, you know, we know that our faces and head are more vascular than other parts of our body. So a small gash can look like you're dying because uh, it just keeps yep. on bleeding. A lot of um, blood. Lot of blood. And, and then the option of getting out of there, you know, it, it could go both ways. Uh, but you choose to get the hell out of the building. Um, because you just want to get away from the disaster at this point, and then uh, you can uh, take a look at your uh, your bleeder later. Now, if it was a massive bleeder, right, because we have different kinds of bleeders, there's ones you want to assess right then and there, and then there's ones that can wait. Um, uh, I would say if it was anything worse, then, yeah, you would assess it on the spot. Uh, but for a facial, you know, laceration of some sort, you can deal with it later. Um, okay, so... Once you're, uh, once you, now you're safe. Or actually, you get outside. You get outside, okay? The rental car that the production company um, provided you is nearby. Um, but there's also a big open soccer field across the street. So do you, A, head to your car, or do you head to the open soccer field? Listen, you've just had a head injury, so I would go head to the open soccer field because you don't <laughs> want to be getting in the car and driving with a head injury. That is right. So the roads are likely chaotic anyway. There's probably big cracks breaking up the roads and everything's a mess. You're probably not going to get too far in your vehicle, even though it seems like a great idea. Um, so anyway, yes, you go to the soccer field. In front of you, okay, because there's another aftershock. Holy shit. The earth is shaking once again. Hopefully this is the last one. But in front of you is a big sinkhole that starts to open up. All right. Now, sinkholes are popular in California without the earthquake. <laughs> There's just shit that just opens up uh, in highways or, you know, definitely during closer to the coastlines. You know, there's a lot of the sinkhole issues. Um, you obviously want to get away from the sinkhole. Uh, and to your right is a large hill. To your left is an asphalt parking lot. Do you A, go to the parking lot, or B, go uphill of the sinkhole? Oh, well, listen, a sinkhole is a sinkhole. I suppose it's going <laughs> to get you anywhere. But um, I would say go. I would, I would probably go to the parking lot because it's got that concrete 
it's going to be more durable than 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 maybe going uphill if it's if it's if it's is it grass going uphill so that sinkhole could take you down i don't know i'm going parking lot just for the just for the just for the sturdiness of 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 the extra protection of hopefully not sinking into the ground yeah well i i think you're rational you're rationalizing this pretty good uh but mother <laughs> mother earth doesn't give two fucks about asphalt <laughs> She is gonna crack it, whether you, whether no matter exactly. how strong. It's a, sink, it's a sinkhole, right? <laughs> but uh, the the rule of thumb is if you can take the high ground uh, with sinkholes, you should. So the hill, the rule of thumb is go to high ground. Um, but go. yeah, I, I do like your logic. You know, asphalt and strong concrete, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's man made, and like I said, Mother Nature, she doesn't give a shit about man made stuff. Um, nope. Yeah. So now you're at the top of the hill. Uh, you got the blood still coming down your face. Nearby, you see a bridge. Okay, and cross the bridge, you see an ambulance. All right. Last question. Do you cross the bridge and go to the ambulance, or do you signal the ambulance from afar uh, to come to you? Hmm. Oh, now, being the person that I am, <laughs> I love bridges. I would be like, listen, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna put someone else's life at risk. You know, they could come across that bridge and it could potentially have another shake. And it, you know, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I'd done that. So, listen, being first man in and being the point man um, that I was, I'd have to go go over that bridge and uh, get to the ambulance because you wouldn't want the ambulance to come over if they lose all their equipment and you know lose 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 their life because of a gash in my head. Um, then, then that wouldn't sit well with me. So I'd, I'd go towards them. That is the best logic I've heard. Yes, I mean, the bottom line is, is you don't want to cross a bridge after an earthquake. <laughs> it's got danger written all over it. So, but if you had to make a choice, I like the choice you made, which is you go to the ambulance so that you're not putting other people's lives in danger. And I, you know, I can't argue with that. So. Ant Middleton, you have survived this podcast. Good job, buddy. <laughs> hey, Just, man. Wow. You this made is... me sweat, Clo Clint. You made me sweat. I had a couple <laughs> of questions there. I was like, ooh. You did good. You got, I mean, theoretically, you got eight out of 10, which is, uh, hey, that's passing, and that's all that really matters. There you go. Um, so, yeah, good job. Um, you know, where can people find you where can people learn more about you your books your tv shows everything you got going where it's like do you have a central hub for all your stuff yeah if you go to my website which is just antmiddleton.com there's uh, everything on there from my tours to to my tv to my books um probably you know stay off of google no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> hey you know uh, but no there's a there's a centralized hub but you know, I'm hopefully going to come out to the States next year. Um, I was due to come out um, the beginning of this year, um, you know, just to, to hit that circuit of media. I've got a lot of uh, interest from a few uh, networks in America, um, you know, a lot of survival stuff, a lot of um, fear factor stuff. So, uh, yeah, don't be surprised if you don't see me, uh, your side of the, the pond, um, early next year or, or mid next year sometime. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll definitely be venturing over, mate, and, and seeing you, that's for sure. I hope so. And make sure you come to the great state of Texas. We'll take care of you without Absolutely. a doubt. Absolutely. 
And, uh, you know, there you go, everyone. One thing, dude, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know you're busy. I know you're in the middle of, uh, you know, a speaking tour uh, there. And I know you're, you have a follow on tour in Australia. I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for taking the time and coming on uh, the show. Um, And yeah, I appreciate your lessons learned and everything. So for those listening, go check out Ant Middleton, antmiddleton.com. Um, he's got a lot of books. The one that I'm holding up right now, if you're watching, is uh, The Fear Bubble. A uh, lot of lessons learned here out of his climb of Mount Everest and uh, so much more. This guy offers a lot. So make sure you check him out on his social platforms as well. I am following. So if you forget his name, just go look at who I'm following and uh, follow those characters. They're all great people. Ant, thanks again. And for those listening, remember, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. Take it easy out there. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>